0: S she died last week? Well um week before but I went home for the funeral last week. How old was she? What's your name, Lois? Carol. Carol. Anybody else? And
1: Vicki Corda, who also passed away Thursday
0: See? night. So Take your time.
1: Vicki Corda. Vicki? Who passed away Thursday night.
0: You passed? Uh, Wednesday night. Sorry. What, what happened? Wednesday, night, she's been battling cancer. It's been a long We prayed long, for her long. before, yeah? Uh, we might have been here, yes. I think. <clears throat> okay. Vicki and, sorry, Carol. Carol, come on. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit thank you Lord again for our life from you for the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning your words to us Um, you brought healing to a man whose faith was great enough that in the face of all the obstacles in the way of getting to you friends helped, it's an example of what we're asked to do with each other to bring people to you Um, and did an extraordinary thing you offended um, so many of the people looking on because for you to forgive sins was outrageous only God could do that and it kept them from receiving you help us to be careful of things like that in ourselves that can get in the way of um, the offering that you make to us. You call us to repentance, uh, ask us to take it seriously, and um, offer forgiveness. Um, help us to all enter into a serious repentance um, and open ourselves to the forgiveness that you offer. I want to offer a blessing on Carol. Carol, Um, Receive her soul um, into your kingdom. Um, If if there's a purgatory waiting for her, let our prayers help um, speed her. She may all the sooner know the joy of being in your presence. None of us will be with you and with our sins. We have to cleanse them. Help us to pick up that effort here in our world before our end comes. And, sorry, Barbara. Vicki. Vicki.
1: Corey.
0: She passed too, yeah. Receive Vicki into your kingdom, forgive her sins, wash them away. Um, If there's a purgatory, she will enter it, joyfully, because all of us would, knowing it takes us to you. Let our prayers help her. Um, I would ask for a blessing on all of us to be strengthened in what we do with our prayers to make them more a part of our lives. Most especially I want to offer thanksgiving for Father in his time here. Um, Bless that man. What a great gift he's been to us. He's a soldier. He carries St. Thomas in him. Um, He takes obedience seriously. Um, When he made his announcements, it was so clear it was difficult. I've never seen him rush from the altar to the podium as quickly or speak as quickly. Um, He he had to get it out. Um, It wasn't easy for him and he was cheerful. Always is. Help us to live his example, uh, to take seriously the gift, to show what a great gift is by uh, by following his example, living as he is what has been for us. Um, Bless him in his new parish. Let him find a welcome there. Um, Give him the courage to do hard things. Um, Let him carry all of our prayers, our hearts, with him to help him um, find his strength to do what he's going to do. Continue um, to deepen his heart, his love for you, and his mind. We offer all of these prayers, Christ, in your name, Amen. Amen. I'm going to read uh, quickly just one last psalm to get through these psalms, and then I'm going to. Do you all have the proof rock piece? <coughs> I think there, there's. I think it should be out there. If you don't. Did you get them? Huh? This is Psalm, you don't have it in the sheet, so I, I think I told you, Suzanne and I have been reading the Psalms nightly and can't tell you how much I'm enjoying it. The, um, I've read them before but not like this through um, in sequence and, and um, I think I've said this before and I hope I'm not repeating myself too much because I'm afraid I am but one of the pleasures that I'm taking in the Psalms is that um, um, David committed awful sins um, God makes clear how much he loves him he says he's a man after his own heart he committed um, adultery, covered it up with, by murdering Uriah, I think that's what his name, you know, Bathsheba's husband's name was. And he did it in a premeditated way. So if, if a modern got a hold of that, you know, the, 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 the Bible typically doesn't go into detail about these things, it's telling a narrative with a larger design, so. <coughs> um, so the Bible, typically doesn't go into details about that and lots of people can miss it but if you look at it seriously you realize how premeditated David was to set up Uriah like that to give him an excuse to cover to cover his trail so it it was a despicable horrible evil and the the prophet comes to him and tells him god's unhappy with him and he puts on sackcloth and repents and goes on when you read the Psalms, the amazing thing about the Psalms is he's aware of his sin. He, he doesn't blacken himself. He doesn't crawl into a hole of despair. Um, he remains absolutely steadfast in his love of God, knowing that God's love of him is steadfast. So it's a wonderful example of, of somebody committing the worst sins possible, at least according to the Ten Commandments, um, and and not allow those sins to keep him from loving God. Everything he does in every single psalm he writes is in terms of God. There's nothing that he deals with, not a thing. Enemies um, in, in battle, enemies in town, and in in, I'll read here and you'll see, it, it's hard to believe that the people around him didn't have a sense of what he did, which would have made it worse because they would have, they would have had a reason for persecuting him. So there wasn't any hardship he didn't deal with. His, he's going to go to war with his son. His family's going to fall apart. Um, God is punishing him. He, there's, I mean, he's got these impossible obstacles. He's almost like an epic hero, you know, in the in the, in the books that we read, Achilles, um, Odysseus, Aeneas, Except he's he belongs to the Judaic, now Christian tradition. So he. Um, it's, a, it's a big difference uh, from what we encounter in the pagan epics uh, so it, it's an extraordinary I, my, I would suggest you know, read a psalm a night for the next two months, go through the psalms um, I can't believe it you, you won't be inspired and lifted in some ways because it's, it's been amazing <laughs> for us This is Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. His language, his sense of metaphors, metaphors, the, the richness of his language and what it reflects about it, what he sees in the world. I mean this is the soul of a poet whose, whose heart longs for God. That he could have written this to me is just amazing. <coughs> More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, thou knowest my folly. The wrongs I have done thee are not hidden from thee. Let not those who hope in me be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek thee be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for thy sake that I have borne reproach, but shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brethren, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult thee have fallen on me. When I humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. It's like a poor shouting of Christ. But as for me, my prayers to Thee, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of Thy steadfast love, answer me. With thy faithful help, rescue me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for thy steadfast love is good. According to thy abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me, redeem me, set me free because of my enemies. Thou knowest my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to thee. Insults have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Let the oppressed see it and be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. (coughs) For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own that are in bonds. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves therein for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah and his servants shall dwell there and possess it the children of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it Um, there is nothing, nothing more important than God no matter what's going on in his life no matter what he, he sees it in terms of God I think I've mentioned this before. How many of us go through the life, our lives, with compartments? You know, religion, mass on or weekends, or business world. <laughs> There's nothing that happens in Dave's life, David's life, that isn't in terms of God. Um, it's an amazing, amazing what he did. Okay, very quickly, um, proof <coughs> rock. Does everybody have a copy
1: of Proof Rock? Linda. Well, I found
0: you. It's good to see you again. Okay. Thank
1: you.
0: Where's your friend?
1: Feeling amazed out there. <laughs>
0: That's beautiful. Thank you. Um we're gonna do Proof Rock. We're gonna do <coughs> Elliot for a while for lyrics. And Prufrock is too long to do in in one reading, so I'm going to divide it up. Um, Take a look at J. Alfred Prufrock. T.S. Eliot is one of a handful of poets who are the greatest poets of the 20th century. In some ways, some people think he's the greatest, and I think there's a ground for that. Um, Eliot, Wallace Stevens, um, William Butler Yeats are probably the three greatest poets of the 20th century. Frost would probably be just below that, but I'm, you know, considered in that group. There's a good reason for making Eliot first because of all the work, the critical work that he did. Um, He he wrote books of criticism and criticism of culture, so his work went well beyond poetry. Um, But his poems are important because um, Lots of people, I think most serious thinkers, look at Eliot's poetry as, as defining the beginnings of modernity. That, that may sound outrageous because it's so large, but I think there's a truth to it. When Proof Rock was published and The Wasteland, everybody understood that something was happening in poetry that had never been done before. The Wasteland is a condemnation of Western culture. It's a, It's a lyric poem, but it's presented. I'm going to say it's epic in its scope. We may do it, I'm not sure, but And certainly Prufrock, and, and we'll see why in a minute. But the interesting thing is, intellectuals read him and um, um, were drawn to him as to a magnet. He, he was such a powerful figure, and what he was doing was so different and so important. and people recognized Alan Tate, who, who I think is one of the greatest men of letters of the 20th century, discovered Eliot and, and had this kind of an experience. He said he'd been trying to write poetry for years. He, he's a poet too. I mean, he's written some amazing poetry. But he said in, until he read Eliot, he was drowning. That he, he couldn't find his voice because he was still trying to write in a traditional <laughs> verse that no longer served. Poetry before Eliot had a narrative quality to it that made it easier to follow. You, and you'll see when we do proofrock that goes that goes out the window. When when you read Eliot, you you'll, you won't see a, a narrative logic, one thing easily following another. You're going to find your mind dealing with um, contraries and um, opposites in in a way that can be terribly confusing. Um, so. Um, something new was going on. And here's the strange thing that, that lots of people don't um, take as seriously as they should. Nothing Eliot did doesn't carry the past forward, doesn't recognize it worse than. If you read enough Eliot, you'll see there's almost a, not a line that he wrote that isn't a plagiarism of some line some other poet wrote. Um, it gives a new twist to the meaning of plagiarism. Um, when you read through it you, you, you hear other voices. So he's doing what I've said the epic poets do. They carry the past forward but transform it and redeem it as it goes. Um, the opening, the opening his first earliest poems are all severe critiques of Western culture in a collapse. The, the one of them is called The Wasteland. Um, it's actually, it's actually a, a, um, a phrase he get from Dante. If you look at the Love Simon J. Alfred Proofrock, you'll see that the um, the opening epigraph is taken from the Inferno and I'm gonna let you look up the lines because you've got an English translation. Um, so in right away he's he's asking us to read proofrock in light of Dante. If you go through Eliot's poetry, you'll see that Dante was the most important influence in his life. The most important, by far. Um, so here's the interesting thing. You've heard me say, I, I look at Milton, Milton's thought of as the first modern, and he is for the reasons that we wonder. There's a terrible confusion that begins with the Reformation. We talked that through. Um, so Milton typically looked at it as a modern. I, in some ways, I think that's a mistake, it, and it's, it's not faithful to what's going on. If you read Milton, it's impossible to read him without going back to a Homeric world. I mean, the, the war in heaven is more like Homer's world than anything modern. Dante's a medievalist and he straddles the medieval modern world, and I'm gonna say that in lots of ways he's far more modern than Milton because he takes himself as his subject, it's a narrative, um, and he enters a, um, a, a world that is real but with a completely different narrative technique. Homer would have never used it, Virgil would have never used it, Statius would have never used it. Um, he's, he is the hero of the poem, he's also the poet. So he's taking himself, It's it has a subjective cast to it that's absolutely modern. Um, so in lots of ways it's, it's really hard it, it's impossible to read Eliot and get the full meaning of his poems without carrying a, um, a tradition into them because he's using, on, using it, drawing on all the time. So I'm going to just read the, um, the opening section of The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And notice this immediately. The title of the poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. What does the name suggest for you, J. Alfred Prufrock? Anybody? I can't hear the name without thinking of somebody prudish, J. Alf- J. Alfred Prufrock. Mm-hmm. Um, it, um, it, it, when you read it, you'll see he's an aesthete. He, he is very modern. I, I think the modern soul is captivated by, I'm not exaggerating this, captivated by an aesthetic sense of things. We go online, people have images in front of them all the time that they can control. We can make a virtual reality with media today so we can create our own world. We are taken with beauty and images they're always in front of us online. So it's created this um, what I'm gonna call an aesthetic dependence that it, that aesthetic sense defines the modern soul. Um, Eliot already saw this. Proofrock is enamored of art, and he lives in a culture that, that is enamored. We'll see that we keep getting this refrain as we go through the poem. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. Art, poetry, painting is very much on people's mind Because it, it, sh- it represents a cultivated sensibility. You're better than other people because you know the arts. Right? Um, and notice the title again, The Love Song of Jamford Prufock. Now stop and think about the lyrics that we've been reading for the last couple of years. Almost all the lyrics have to do with a person describing his feelings for a beloved, something well-loved, whatever it is. Um, it can be Shakespeare or or Dante. Um, it can be Hopkins' loving nature and finding God in it. But it it's, tends to be subjective. We, we, we're allowed into the interior of the poet to, who's expressing his feelings about something he loves. So at the center of the lyric has always been this motion of love. I think it's what defines the lyric. It's loving something. For words, it would have been nature. Simple, rustic things. Eliot knows that. He's calling this the love song. So he's placing it in the tradition and expecting us to know that. But what's it dealing with? It's dealing with this man and we've got to look at what we learn about this guy from the poem. But he's setting this poem in that tradition. It's a love song. Um, what we're going to find as we go through that... Is it love of self? Yeah, that, that the, the meaning of love could not be more ironic. And that in itself since it sets this poem in absolute tension against the whole lyric tradition. That's how radical it is, okay? Um, it, it's about a man who's going on an, um, t- to meet a woman, presumably. Um, an assination, a meeting with expectations of what may or may not happen. So it belongs in the tradition of the, of the lyric poet with the beloved on his mind. Okay? That's just a major part of the lyric tradition up to this time. What I'm going to—I don't usually do this, but I'm going to ask it in this case. I don't give you assignments except for the reading to keep up. I'm going to ask you to read this on your own this week when you go home because I'm not going to read the whole thing today. I'll break it up, but read it um, and um, be patient. Make an opening for confusion. It's—it's it's not going to be immediately clear, but I think if you read it and um, and read it a couple of times and think about it, a, a lot will become clear. You'll see. A, a lot about Prufrock and his own soul, what's going on with him. The Love Song of Geoffrey Prufrock. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient, etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights, one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question do not ask what is it let us go and make our visit Now notice that it in this is, it is sort of amazing it, it develops by rhyming couplets which is not an uncommon thing um, Chaucer does the Canterbury Tales in couplets, rhyming couplets A A B B C C you know and in measured lines these lines are not measured, they have different lengths, and yet they unfold in rhyming couplets. Eye, sky, table, streets, retreats, hotels, see. So we hear an echo of a traditional form, but if you look at the lines and the variation in line lengths, you'll see it couldn't be more different from traditional forms. So it's very musical, it follows traditional um, rhyme patterns, and, and look at the, the language, what it's about. Etherized upon a table, muttering retreats, one night cheap hotels, sawdust restaurant with oyster shells, tedious argument, insidious intent. This is a, a, a world that's very dark <coughs> and in some ways um, dangerous. So everything about the poem sets itself off from the lyric tradition, tradition. Set it next to. Set it next to Wordsworth. Set it next to Hopkins, Shakespeare. <coughs> Something sinister is at work. Um, In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes. Licked its tongue into the corners of the evening lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back, the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October, October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. It describes the setting, it's a fog settling over in England, or a London cityscape, but the, everything about the descriptions of the city is, is rendered in terms of a, of a cat. Why? And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet, there will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate, time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. All the proprieties of English life. There's something wrong. Yeah, I mean, people live these proprieties, they define their life. It's, it's like respectability in Chaucer's world. That people live <coughs> in this respectable life, but something's not what it seems to be. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare, do I dare? time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin, do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evening, mornings, afternoons, I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall, beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase, and when I'm formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I'm pinned and wriggling on the wall, And how should I begin to spit out all the butt-ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light-brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress, arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl? And should I then presume? And how should I begin? I'm going to stop here. God, this is so good. I hope you were reading this during the inferno, so just keep that in mind, <laughs> okay? Um, we'll pick it up again next week, but read it on your own, because I'd love to hear when we, when we start next week what, how you're finding it, okay? This is T.S. Eliot, the beginning of the 20th century, doing something new. Okay, very, very quickly. <coughs> To the Inferno. Um, Last time we met, I I said there are a number of (coughs) principles that inform, direct, govern what Dante does in the in the Commedia, and one of them is um, this fundamental belief in man's free will. Absolutely, no matter what's going on in his life, each of us is responsible for ourselves. How different that is from the modern sensibility, because the modern tends we tend to see ourselves in terms of um, impersonal forces that work in the world. Um, we're likened to atoms drifting in space, isolated. Um, and um, if we if we um, take Dante's view of man and set it next to Freud, it's it's a pretty telling contrast because Freud believed that um, we're all determined by these animal impulses. <coughs> um, what he called the poly- polymorphous perverse instincts or the Oedipus complex, that that um, what defines us are these relationships, largely with our parents, um, so that the sense of the individual and his responsibility for things is lost. Um, we, we explain things away, we blame our parents, um, children will look back. Um, Harold Bloom, who's a, a, a contemporary critic of um, literature, a teacher of literature, has taken Freud as a way of reading literature and reads literature in terms of Freud. He, he says that all literature expresses rivalry between the poet and his father, all of his predecessors. So it defines poetry as a rivalry. He calls it an incest and an infection. It's dark. It's a, to me it's a Manichaean view. That um, we can't see poetry. This is his reading of poetry. He thinks of himself as being very modern. As a matter of fact, it's very Jewish. If you go back to the Old Testament, that's the way the Jews saw each other. The, um, if somebody was in sin, it's because his father did something, or, or at least that was one of the buried assumptions. The Christian view radically changed that. It absolutely, it absolutely took that away. Each one of us is responsible for ourselves. We have free will, even if we've inherited disorders from our parents. We still have to love. That's our call. So, we're going back to a Christian Middle Ages, um, and I think the the poet of the Middle Ages, who believes fundamentally in man's free will. We're just going to see that again and again and again and again. Um, The interesting thing about Dante too, as a medieval Christian, not only did man have free will, Um, But um, he could not grow to become what he was given to be without help. Think about how radically different that is from Milton, because Milton was very private. He looked at God as solitary, Um, Adam was solitary, we read those passages. Dante believes that man has free will, but he can't attain his final end without help. We need each other. And we saw that early on when Dante tried to climb the mountain on his own, and was pushed back. So, a major difference there Um, another difference um, Milton takes the whole epic tradition and and darkens it he takes as the epic hero Satan and by using him he casts a dark light on every epic hero that preceded him Milton believes that nature is depraved that there was a depravity to the epic heroes He he blackens the good. And he does that with the Homeric gods, too. We talked about that. All the fallen angels are the prototypes of the Homeric gods. Zeus, Hera, Athena. Um, Not so with Dante. Dante takes the position. He's a Christian, and in terms of moral value, he's he's superior to Virgil. But he takes Virgil as his guide. He calls him Master, Father, um, Lord. Um, there's nothing that Dante does that that isn't an expression of um, a debt he owes the past that um, there there's so much there to learn from to help him become a better person. So everything about the the divine comedy shows this taking the past, receiving it, and carrying it forward, and transforming it. Um, and the, the, That's true of all the imagery, but it's especially true of Dante, of uh, Virgil. We talked about the allegorical method, very briefly, you know that every event in, in life has four levels, the literal, the allegorical, the tropological, the anagogical. Every, 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 that's a wonderful um, perspective on our understanding. It's, a, it's an epistemological principle because it, it, it helps us to see that there's always something more going on than appearances allow that things may seem simple. I think about this sometimes when we're together in class because I know um, I look at you, you know, we say prayers together. You look at me or each other. I think we all know that there's more going on in our private lives, personal lives, that some of us carry um, sometimes excruciatingly painful burdens. They're not present on the surface. But a poet wouldn't ignore that. I mean, the great poets are the ones who deal with literally what's going on and help us to see that there's more going on underneath the surface. I think about Supernatural Love. You know, I I love that poem. Hopkins Windhover, whatever we're reading. Um, The Psalms that we've been reading of David, there's so much more going on, we know, from from the way he presents things. We talked about hell as a whole, remember, um, that it's a place of concealment, the... the, (laughs) The, the quotes that Eliot's going to use very often have to do th- with that. That um, we, it's, it's interesting. Some people ask Dante um, to let the people know what's going on when he gets back to the world. Other people want to remain um, secretive. They don't want people to know because they're, they carry a shame um, in what they're doing. Um, and we looked at the level of violence, the three levels the violence against neighbors, self, and God. That's, that's where we left off. Um, this week I want to um, try to pick up some of the major themes again and then we'll get to the readings. Dante as an epic hero. Milton took that whole epic tradition and darkened it. Dante is, is receiving it in a positive way. Um, he's presenting himself as an epic hero. He, he's going to be very critical of Achilles and Odysseus. They're going to be in hell. So is Aeneas, so is Virgil. I'm, I'm, we're going to have to talk about Virgil when we come to the end of this because I'm going to give this away, but at the, at the height of Purgatory, when, when Virgil will turn Dante over to Beatrice, he has to return to hell. I, I don't know of any reader of Dante who doesn't trip over that, that it feels unjust. Here's, here's this extraordinary person who bought Dante all this way. He couldn't have done it without him, and he has to go back to hell. Dante's no sentimentalist. What we, when we get there, we're going to talk about that. To, I'd like to hear what your mind is on that. But, um, Dante takes himself as a new hero. He's not a man of arms. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Those are the great pagan heroes. His arm, if anything, is Virgil. And, and we saw last week, when Virgil has to deal with evil, he cracks a little bit. Reason's not adequate to deal with with evil. Um, um, So what is he showing us in this new epic hero? And this is the influence of Aristotle not Plato, Aristotle and St. Thomas. The most fundamental thing to us as humans is learning. That's, that's, That's one with our nature. We were meant to learn so if we look at an epic battle going on here with Dante as an epic hero, what we see is what he's struggling with is learning. Um, he tried to climb that mountain on his own, he couldn't make it. Virgil is teaching him lots of things. He's not only helping to explain things, remember when he, um, when he was confronted with Medusa, as t- he calls him teacher. His teacher picks him up and turns him around physically. Um, There's going to be a couple of times where we're going to see Virgil's not adequate to the task, a number of times we'll we'll encounter that. So Dante's great theme is education, how essential it is to returning to God. We we can't return to God without learning more about ourselves and the nature of the world, the nature of reality, the world around us. In the first part, this is so interesting, if any of you have read G.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy, I mean, it, it's the book that led me to my conversion. It's just it's an extraordinary book. He opens the book by saying, the one, the one thing that people have always had to acknowledge, whatever their philosophy of the world was, it's what the ancient poets started with, it's what all Christians start with, the, the one thing that you, you cannot deny in any argument you make in a disagreement with people is the existence of sin. It's present all around us. We can't escape it. You start there. It teaches you something about yourself. Dante's basically saying the same thing. He can't get to God without learning to see himself. The, in Father's words this morning, we're, the condition for forgiveness is repentance. How can we repent if we don't see our sins? We need help. So the fundamental, the, the battle that's going on here is not a man using armor to defeat another man it's the outcome of a conflict between good and evil in a human soul whether that soul is going to return to God so it's a great spiritual battle
1: it isn't that kind of, sort of the, the, the key to all this is that there's learning but learning in itself isn't sufficient that you, you have to do something okay. without learning and it's almost like and you know, I mean in this case, maybe that's asking for forgiveness. Because you kind of you kind of see hell filled with people who who maybe realize what they did, but they haven't really done anything without learning. Yes. So they, they're in hell instead of purgatory.
0: It uh, yes, yeah. I you, once again, Fred, you're anticipating The Paradiso in your comment, because we have—I mean, I think you're absolutely right. What is it Dante will do? I mean, we already partly know the answer to that because he's written the book, but the meaning of that won't come clear, I I think, until the Paradiso.
1: Because we see that in Virgil's failings, and and it particularly shows up in the chapters that we're about to cover. Yeah, is that 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 difference between reason and and that element that we need to move beyond reason. He's lacking. Yep. And so even though he's in Dante's view the, the epitome of reason, it's insufficient. Right. In many cases, as right. he goes through right. the seventh and eighth circles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna it's gonna yes, right. Um God you mind, might you chase something out of me? Um, I'm sorry. No no no. Mm. Go ahead. Oh, Chase, I had it, and then <laughs> um, yeah. somewhere, um, I th- I think you're right about it, but the I, we're not going to get a complete um, answer to your question. You know, your or the, the the question that's on your mind until we get to the Paradiso. What does can can you can you do something? Oh, I know what. Um, I, I don't think the people in hell do see themselves well. I think that's one of the conditions. Remember, that, and it's an it's a obscure area, but in principle we know that um, everybody in hell has lost the good of the intellect. Um, they're making excuses, justifying it. Um, the, the, this is going to become a little bit clearer when we get into the purgatorio, because there I'm going to say, the mode of knowing as we move through the purgatory will be wonder, that won't make much sense right now, but it'll be wondered. That's not present in, in hell, obviously. The mode of knowing in the, purgator, in the in the inferno is irony. One of the differences between the characters in, the, in, in, the, in hell and Dante and Virgil and us as readers is we're aware of what's going on. They're not. They're caught in a world. That, that's partly the nature of sin. That They've lost the good of the intellect. They can't see very well. Um... We've seen that over and over again, um, and e- and even if characters acknowledge some sense of something, it's usually pretty clear that they don't they don't see to the real truth of what's going on. But let me let's go on. Um, you say, Dante? Sorry. Wouldn't you say that Dante, as he's going through hell, is
1: learning mm-hmm. because he has to go from collapsing in pity to right. shoving somebody. I mean he does act. He does act on
0: what he's learned. No. By, oh you mean in the course of the journey. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and that yeah, and that once again it'll it it isn't it isn't as clear now as it will be at the end of the inferno. When we get to the end of the inferno, you're gonna see some things that so relate directly to pity. I, I hope by this time everybody knows. The most dangerous the most dangerous temptation Dante faces through the whole journey is pity. He, he's unconscious when he comes into hell. He faints when he hears Francisca. He's almost he's almost put to his knees when he's listening to Pierre de That The danger for... And the, the interesting thing about pity is that it looks like love. Pity can arrest a person. You can get... We, we know that. We've seen it in all the literature. Pity can... We saw it in... Go, in uh, two Faces with um, Oriol... Um, there, there isn't a great, there is not a great poet that I know of, the great ones, who don't recognize the danger of pity. It looks like compassion. It has the appearance of love that you're feeling for somebody. You want to help, um, but there's an arresting aspect to both people on both sides of the person offering it, the person receiving it. <clears throat> and to pick up Doc's comment, um, he is learning. I mean, I think she's responding to your your question, Fred, but but remember, too, just to add to what she's saying, that when he starts off, he starts up that mountain thinking he can do it by himself. Obviously, symbolically, what that means is he does not see. Virgil's saying, you have to go down and see. You can't change. You can't do this stuff unless you learn to see your own sins. If if you moderns think because knowledge gives us control of things, the more we know something, the more control we have. But the serious question is, how well do we really see into the soul of another person? Um, Dante has to learn to see things like Odysseus at sea. He has to go to depths. He has to see the truth of things underneath. And and we've seen this already. At each level, he's learning to order his emotions according to the truth of things. In in one sense, to put this more darkly, his pity when when he... when his knees break listening to Francisca is an expression of some way in which he's out of tune with God he's like her he would blame God implicitly that's what's happening right she says if only the Lord of the universe were friendly to me she's blaming him so in some sense it's a sign of how much his own will is set against God by the way this is a Catholic who takes obedience seriously so the ironies are just abounding here yeah so um, so yes um, he, he has to see he has to learn what's at issue here is a conflict between good and evil learning to see the disorders in his own soul <laughs> this has been a principle since Plato the first call to every one of us is to mind our own business to be do, making the changes we should be making in ourselves so that what we bring to other people Is closer to what God is so Dante as an epic hero um, is a is a radically new kind of hero in the epic tradition Um, and what's at issue the action the, the governing action the central theme of the Commedia is learning and and moving closer to God through what he's learning the city <clears throat> we've been talking about the city. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I know I'm going to be repeating some things here that some of you have already heard, but for the sake of people who are new, I'd have to take a few minutes here. Remember that the city first comes into existence with Enoch. Um, Cain killed Abel. He's exiled. God sends him into exile. It's I, I, To me, that's our God is is love. I mean that God God is love. That's His nature. Um, unlike Milton, Dante believes that God created the world freely. It wasn't so that we could owe Him anything or give Him anything. It was a free act of it was a free gift. It was a free act of love, and He calls us all to do the same thing. the The way we should love each other is freely, and I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that is. We, we, by the way, we live in a culture that, that defines itself in terms of the social contract. Hobbes, Rousseau, Locke, we've, we've gone over that a little bit. Marriages, so often today, are marriages of convenience. We, we do something because we expect something back. We're good because we expect a reward. The, the view of Dante in this is radically different that God is a God of love, He gives Himself freely, we're asked to do the same thing. Um, when God sent Cain into exile, he put that mark on him to, to protect him against harm. Now, stop and think about that. I, don't, I mean, I can't imagine Cain being a likable fellow going into the world. He probably would cause fights and somebody might kill him. God loved him anyway. He didn't want people to, to kill him you know, um, in retribution, I suppose. His son, Enoch, is the founder of the first city. So the city comes into existence when man attempts to live without God. That's fundamental to the nature of the city. We want to live without God, to be, to be sufficient ourselves, to not need other people. You know, and I'm trusting you're hearing that. If, if we're made in God's image, we are meant to be in relationships, to love and be loved. But the, the ideal behind the city is to be self-sufficient, to not need anybody, for the city to exist sufficiently without God, without needing God. So the city has always been very paradoxical. It, it shows the very greatest things about man, and it conceals underneath the city are these buried horrors. That all, all of our gravest sins are connected with the city because they arise out of this desire to be self-sufficient. Dante calls the city here, see if I can turn to the text for a second. Um, look at page 52, I'm just going to quickly run, they're all the same, but um, um, in the middle of page 52, O Tuscan walking through our flaming city. So the city here is called the city of Dees, the flaming city. we will see that image picked up again and again. Um, 59, um, top of the page. Why are they too not punished here inside, the city of flame, if they have earned God's wrath? By the way, let me stay here for a minute because here we get um, Virgil setting out the structure of hell remember they've just talked to the heretics and um, they want to take a minute before they go farther to catch themselves because the stench is so bad but they don't want to waste time and so Dante asked Virgil, why are the incontinent outside the city walls? (coughs) Remember there's three levels and the highest is the incontinent. Virgil says, have you forgotten how your ethics reads those terms it explicates in such detail the three conditions that the heavens hate incontinence, malice, and bestiality. Do you not remember how incontinence offends God the least and merits the least blame? If you reconsider well this doctrine, then recall to mind who those souls were suffering pain above, outside the walls." We talked about that a little bit. Remember that heresy means to think differently. That's what the word means. According to the modern world, we would be heretics. I hope that's clear. The the modern orthodoxy is that all people should be able to get along, there should be no differences, nothing should separate us. Um, Anybody holding religious beliefs that would separate him from another person would be bigoted, Heretical. heretical. We believe that the ground of truth is transcendent so that, according to an orthodox Christian, people holding different beliefs would be heretical. Um, but what Dante's showing us here is that what distinguishes the, the incontinent from the violent is um, belief, a more active engagement of the mind. That's why the, the walls are set here because it sets up a boundary. What's an issue here with the, with the incontinent is a weakness. There can be people who are Catholics holding absolute right. They're not heretics in this sense. They're Catholic. I, I think probably Francisca is Catholic. Um, you can be Catholic. What puts the souls in hell here is a weakness. They, they allow a weakness that they have to overcome them so much so that it, it draws them into a sin that, that they don't struggle to turn away from. The purgatory will make that clear because the people in purgatory are so they carry the same weaknesses. The difference between them is that they're repenting. The people in hell use their intellects to cover it up, to deny it, excuse it. of a gun. There's a line in here. Oh, here, good. 74. Can you
1: give the
0: canto? Canto 14, about line 12. Dante has just left Pierre de Vagna on the the level of the suicide and the (coughs) profligates. And he um, he has this line. We stopped right here, right at the borderline. This wasteland was a very dry expanse of sand, thick burning sand, no different from the kind that Cato's feet backed down in the other times. Hell is an image, it is an image of a that's defined as a wasteland. The one of the one of the qualities that we can say is that it's it's different from hell in this sense, that everything about it is sterile. What were Eliot's two most important poems that that define the boundary, the beginnings of modernity? The Love Song of Jaffa Prufrock and The Wasteland. And you can't read The Wasteland without realizing that everything about the modern city is defined in terms of its sterility. Marriages, abortion, I mean look at our world. It, 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 it's dying um, from inside. That's why, I mean it's it's one of the most important Poems of the 20th century because it really critiqued modernity. Um, it was the first serious critique of everything that people had taken as a matter of course that that's what the way life was. Um, interesting too, particularly in, in the, the readings for today, when Dante meets Brunetto um, who was his teacher? We'll look at it in a second. And the sodomites and the usurers. Remember, this is the level of violence, except in the, of, in the opening section, the river of blood, you know, the um, violence against one's neighbors. We don't see anybody doing anything violent. People are not attacking each other, we're not seeing fighting. People are in groups, m- moving mechanically through their penance or their punishments. Um, when you look at all those men, Brunetto, the Sodomites, the users, they're all the most prominent well-educated men of Florence with the Italian towns. Every one of them is well-educated. They represent an educated class, so they have all the marks of education, learning, um, but they're here in the the circle of violence. So by violence Dante just does not mean physical abuse. There's a violence that's going on that's um, not as physical. Physical abuse is obvious, you can't miss it. The kind of abuse that Dante's the kind of violence that's on his mind is more hidden, um, more subtle. So um, what we're seeing is once again gradually and in, in, from very different perspectives Dante is unmasking the modern commercial regime. What he's showing is that underneath this appearance of prosperity, and wealth, and education, and learning are all these corruptions. And Remember, the defining motives of the commercial city are pride and envy. Wanting to get ahead, stepping on people, using them to get ahead, the terms of the modern city, watch your back, paper trail, you know, that, that all of those things are, are manifestations of one person wanting to, to get ahead, even if it means doing that, turns another person into an object. We, we objectify because we want to get ahead. We objectify other people. Treat them as objects. Okay, very, very quickly. Um, um, I want to look at the dissent. <clears throat> Remember, we've said that um, one of the easiest things to do as we're reading the committee is get so caught up at each level that we forget that a descent is taking place. And it's all in the same direction. No matter what we meet at each level, every one of us takes us deeper and deeper into sin. So what Dante's showing us is um, um, the real nature of the human soul. He gives us a, a visual image of those things that are Invisible. That's why the contrapasso is so so important that we learn to see the real nature of what's going on, and we're seeing that at each level the will becomes more aggressive, less less passive, far more aggressive in what it, it's getting. So we move from the incontinence, um, Francesco and Paola making love, Chiaco you know in the swamp, at the level of avarice, the two groups crashing into each other. The, the, remember the spendthrifts and the and the hoarders. And no identity, they had nothing to identify them until we get to the level of the violent and heresy, where the mind and the will become more aggressive in getting what it wants. So, if we look at the descent, what we're seeing is this the the first movement into sin is always unconscious. We don't see it, we never do when we're kids, we're too young. But once we attach ourselves to some earthly good, once once we want something, once our desires become more active, and those desires are not curbed, we want our way more and more. We use our mind to get our way, to have what we want. So what we're watching is, what hap- I, th- I believe this is true, it, it's what happens to all of us, that's why I think it's such a frightening thing. Because at the center of hell, we're going to see these horrific, nightmarish kinds of scenes. And I, I, I believe that, that all of us carry them. But in fact, let me, let me try to, because I'm not sure that that's obvious, so let me, let me go at this another way. Because I think most of us think, I don't commit. Father says this all the time. I haven't committed adultery, I haven't killed anybody, I'm a good person. We're respectable, we get along in the world, we're doing everything. To all appearances, we're good. When Dante goes down, remember to the depths of hell, he goes down on Garion's back. Do you remember how Garion's face is described?
1: An honest man. man.
0: Scary. Huh? Oh, no. Okay. I'm nothing Huh?
1: An innocent, man. An innocent An
0: innocent, handsome, handsome good-looking guy.
1: Yeah. Put it on a beast.
0: Yeah. 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 A reptile, too. A beast yeah. and a reptile. With a stinger. Right. <laughs> so what he's showing is, he's, he's unmasking. He's showing underneath this image of respectability that all of us present to the world are these horrible sins. We want our way. Let me go back. I want to, because I, I don't know that that's obvious, because I don't, you know, I I mean, most of us live in respectable worlds and we appear to be good, and um, here's what makes sense of all of this, ultimately, for me, if it isn't obvious. I mean, I, I take it as obvious because I've been living with it and I believe Dante, he, he shows things the way they are. Um, our original, Milton let the cat out of the bag. Milton did this. The, our original sin was against God. That's where all of our sins come from. What does it mean to disobey God? Um, we've been watching um, Robert Barron's Catholicism, and I'm really disagreeing with him. I, I think what he's done is, I, I love his work. I'm, my, Suzanne and I are really enjoying it, but I think his presentation as of our original sin is, at least I'm not at ease with it. What does it mean to disobey God? As, as we learn in, in Genesis, we don't have much to go on. Eve is tricked. She offers the apple to Adam and he takes it, and um, his act is, a, is an act of disobedience. She's strict. Um, what we have in, in Genesis is simply he cared more about her than God. I don't think he's, I can't see in him, he wants to control God. He wants, you know, it, it's, an, it's an act of concupiscence. He wants her more than God. So, at least that's Genesis. I mean, different people will do different things about it. But let me put a different spin on it. That's our original sin. My belief is that not all the holocausts, not all the holocausts throughout history will ever equal that sin. Because to turn away from the ultimate source, God is being, he's everything, to sin against that is to lose everything, to offend against everything. And the, the reason Christ had to come in, because no man could atone for that sin our sin was against an infinite being. We're finite creatures. The the proof, in my mind, of the meaning of that act comes when we crucify Christ. We killed Christ. We killed God. That shows how much we want the world. I mean the actual cost of it. We put God on a cross. Uh, We were implicated, all of us, in it. So when, when Dante goes down to the depths of Hell, I don't think he's saying some of us have these things and some don't, some people are nicer. I think he's saying this is the nature of the human soul. Dante cannot climb that mountain if he doesn't see sin at its depths. So he's showing us the worst things about ourselves that are buried. The whole point of it is to learn to see. That's why this unmasking that Virgil has to come along to help him see. How can he change if he doesn't see the horrors there? You know, I've been saying this to you guys now for beating you over the head with it. If we don't learn to identify ourselves with every creature in literature, then we're, you know, only with the good guys. We're we're living in an illusory world, and identifying with Iago is <laughs> not going to be fun for anybody. Iago is one of the most sinister characters, in But I I don't think Shakespeare could have done that if he hadn't known the depths of his own sin and sin itself. And so in the descent, we're going from sins that are more innocent to those that are more violent and those those finally that are most sinister because they're most deceptive. So um, I'm going to do this just quickly. The guardians of each level, in some sense, image the, the nature of the sin, just like the contrapassos. Charon, who's the ferryman across the Acheron, is likened to night. He's associated with the nothingness that's just on the outside of sin. Because sin is a privation. We, we separate ourselves from being, the plenitude of being. Cerberus is night. He's a descendant. He's an offspring of night. He lives in darkness. The description of Charon's eyes as being ringed with flame and of glowing coals, there's that fire image again, suggests the inhuman character and creature of the sinner when he makes its passage into sin. The first sin is to enter into that darkness. Remember, it's the, it's the, it's the um, river Acheron, right? It's a boundary, it marks a boundary, a passage from one state into another. Minos is the guardian of the second circle, the lustful. He wraps his t- tail around each sinner to indicate the level that sinner's to go to. What does that mean? Um, I think, I'm not sure about this, I offered this. I think he's an image of the accusing conscience. Maybe even self-righteous or stern judgment. He wraps his tail around himself to indicate the level. The self-wrapping tail may be an image of the inward-turning, self-condemning motions of guilt. We condemn others. How often do we condemn ourselves? Often, I would say. You know, the, the word Satan means accuser. He's our accuser. How much, how much do we accuse ourselves in our own self-guilt? Um, Cerberus, the three-headed dog um, at, the, at the level of gluttony, we talked about it. It's as if he can't have enough. He cannot say no to himself with respect to food. Um, he wants more and more, because the appetite, once it's set in motion, is insatiable. It can't be satiated, or won't be without penance. Um, Pluto is the, um, the god of wealth. Remember when, um, when he meets Dante, Virgil says something and he becomes deflated. It's as if he's just empty, there's nothing there. The desire for wealth is an empty desire. Once we have it, what do we have? I hope, I hope that's clear because wealth itself is, is meant to, um, to facilitate trade. There's no value in money itself, right? It's worth is, is the reason it's invented is it's, commu- it's communicative, we can, we have a means of relating each other and exchanging things of different value. But in itself, there's, there's nothing to it. Um, Phlegius, the, um, the fairy man across the Styx. He's the son of Ares, and a human mother. Phlegius gave birth to a human daughter. And uh, when Apollo fell in love with her, he set fire to his temple. He was um, he was so outraged that he defied the gods. So what you have, and um, in that in the level of in the river Styx, remember, is that sullen, angry, um, that sullen anger. On the other side of it, that river is the city of Dees and the level of the violent and then the fraud. The defining image of the city is the Medusa and the three Furies. And what we have there, so important, are inversions of the Trinity. The three, I mean, remember, if, if, if hell, if, if the ultimate city, and, and remember, our ultimate destiny is a city, the city's not, it's a mistake to think of the city in mechanical terms, just to found by mechan- boundaries that can shift. The city is a real image of the communal nature of man. We were meant to be together. So the ultimate end of man is the New Jerusalem. That's our ultimate city. The, the book of Revelation makes that clear, the nature of the city. If, if, there's, if, if hell exists, we would expect it to be the opposite. The New Jerusalem would be life-giving eternally um, hell is sterile there's no life um, it's the place of the dead um, if if at the center of the New Jerusalem city is the Trinity which which it is then you'd expect hell to to show its inversions and that's what we're going to find the last image I'm getting ahead but the last I don't the last images are so important. One is of Ugolino, and I'll wait on that because to me it's one of the most important cantos of the whole, divine, or the whole inferno. But the last image before Dante and Virgil leave hell is, is of Satan eating three men Brutus, Cassius, Judas. So everywhere hell shows signs of the Trinity, but they're burnt out, sterile, dead. Um, they're parodies. Of the, the, the living intimacies, the, the indwelling that goes on between the persons of the Trinity, here it's people using each other it's, it's, an, it's, it's an expression of God's economy people are used to help facilitate the punishments between themselves <clears throat> and remember what does the Medusa do if you look on her? she turns you into stone. I, my own belief of that is, is that is that What that means is you've given in to despair. The the greatest sin that man can commit is despair. Despair without hope. That's the French. No hope. Remember, David committed these great, great sins. They never kept him from God. We're asked, this is our faith, no matter how bad our sin is, if our hearts are genuinely (coughs) correct, if we go to confession, they're forgiven. Despair is taken away. Um, I hope everybody finds in these middle sections, because they get really ugly. Some nervousness about not having gone to confession for a while, I don't know. <laughs> okay, that's the dissent. Let me stop. I want to look at some readings now. But any, any comments or questions on what we've done so far? There are all these aspects to the Divine Comedy. All these aspects to the infirm that make it such a rich thing. We're just going to read a few
1: things then. I, I just find it interesting that um, you know Dante's encountering souls I and mean, they haven't been reunited with the body yet because Christ hasn't come back yet, and yet he's able to recognize them from their soul. Which, you know, I, I never really thought of things that way before. I mean, you kind of... Explain it, Fred. Well, I mean, when I... Because there,
0: there's a truth I, to that.
1: I, I guess I guess what took me aside, and I, I may be that I'm just... I'm not as far along in my journey as most of the people in this room are, but I always thought of the soul as kind of an, 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 an ethereal thing. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no, no form, but, you know, was basically kind of, you know, who I was, but you know someone look at it would never know me from anyone else. And the uniqueness of this story is that he can tell very clearly who they are.
0: Explain that, why?
1: Well, what, I don't What's know. the
0: relationship between the soul and it, body given I, I, what you just said? I, I,
1: think, I think what it says is that the soul is who we really are and you know the body is just the, the the method by which we are able to to learn and decide to do something about that through the senses and and everything else but that the real person and you know you, you talked on it earlier that you know we see we see one thing but you know we don't really see who the real person is we kind of see from the outside what that person wants us to to think they are yeah and so, by virtue of the fact that he can see a soul and 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 immediately know who they are, you know, people from his from his past says that that is who we really are. Yeah. And we just we just it, it's hidden.
0: Let me let me come at this a different way. Just that's such a good insight. I mean, such a really it's <laughs> it's it's really good. Um, we live in a Cartesian world. That's probably not going to mean, you've been hearing me talk about We live in a schism, a divorce between the body and soul in the modern world. That's just, and the Protestant mind has reinforced it. Nature's corrupt, you know, there's something better. But, and the the modern, the typical, not all, but most scientists look at, work off that Cartesian model and look at human beings as if it's a spirit inside of a box. (coughs) Or a box that can be explained purely in mechanical, physical terms. That's the modern mindset. Um, that's not an exaggeration. We live in a schism. So we don't put the soul and body together. Well, you just did a wonderful thing. We don't put the soul and body together. There's this line. I cut it. I wish I'd brought it. Barron has a line where he's quoting St. Thomas, saying something like, it's, it's not like the soul is in the body. It's, it, it would be more accurate to say, I'm going to bring it next week. It's almost as if the soul infloods the body or... Because there is no part of a human being that can be distinguished from its body, when when you get into heaven, I'm assuming, despite yourself, I despite yourself, I see everyone there. <laughs> one of my prayers, often I'm not kidding, I've got to say it openly. One of my prayers is that we will all meet in the heaven. So I'm not kidding. It is a serious, it is a serious prayer, even for you. The journey was successful. <laughs> what I'm about to read is going to. I hope it's just frightening to me but um, this, the, the fundamental principle of form is that it um, it's the principle that gives us life but you can't understand it apart from the body so um, the, the body is the principle of individuation we're all humans it's the body that distinguishes right it's the principle of, so if you look at buttons right Out of of the same mold? What's the distinguishing quality of every button when they look absolutely identical from a different part of the tree? Different matter. Yeah? Same with blouses and the cloth. Same blouse, but off a different piece of the fabric, right? The principle of individuation is the body, but you can't separate it. So when the soul leaves, it's not like it's a thing in there that (laughs) departs Because to think like that already says you're in a Cartesian world. It's like the body is a separate thing. That's the great fallacy, truly the great fallacy of the modern mind. Is that clear? You don't take the soul out and the body just stays there. The soul has gone. The soul is the form of the body. So when the person goes to the next world, even though he doesn't have his body, there's no way not to identify him. What else would he look like? It's not like the soul is this amorphous piece of clay. It takes that form because that's who you are. When the body's returned in, the, in, in times when the, after the resurrection, when the body's returned, each, piece, each person will be as distinct as he was before, but somehow with a glorified body, whatever that body will look like. So that's a wonderful insight. Dante can recognize him because he understands, unlike a modern, that... Um, the, the soul can't look differently from the body because we're not angels. We're humans. We're corporeal creatures. That's our nature. What we've been seeing with every contrapasso is the concrete effects of sin. We couldn't do that if you didn't understand our nature as humans, corporeal creatures. Let me go to the readings. Because we're about out of time and I want to um, get here before Debbie has to leave. <clears throat> Turn to page... 70, 79, canto 15, line 16, and follow, follow, This is where Dante meets his teacher, Brunetto. Page 80. Is this really you here, Sir Brunetto? He can't believe it. And notice how respectful Dante is. This is his teacher. He wrote this great book, um, Page 81, the next page, about line 55 or so. Follow your constellation, and you cannot fail to reach your port of glory, not if I saw clearly in a happy life. And if I had not died just when I did, I would have cheered you on and all your work seen how favorable heaven was to you. He understood heaven, its existence. He hoped that Dante would get there one day with all of his gifts. But he himself didn't um, they've always had that fame of being blind and envious race proud and avaricious you must not let their ways contaminate you there's the image of the city perfectly <coughs> what defines it proud and avaricious being blind and envious race there it is what defines our emotions are pride and envy we want to get ahead we want to be self-sufficient uh, we want to have what we want. We we want to have our way. When he, when somebody gets in the way, we fight with them. You must not let their ways contaminate you. Your destiny reserves such honors for you. Both parties shall be hungry to devour you, but the grass will not be growing where the goat. It. Here's another one of those prophecies early on in hell. Dante has got something to do. He's not. By the way, those of you who've done the Aeneid, remember, Aeneas didn't get clear on his calling until he spoke with Anchises in the underworld. He had to see his father to be clear on what his goal was. What's happening here? How much did Dante learn from the past? He won't get clear on what his calling is without going to the underworld. And he's learning from sinners repeatedly. Some notion of a calling is shaping, taking shape in him. Ah, if all I wished for had been granted, I answered him, you certainly would not not yet be banished from her life on earth. My mind is etched, and now my heart is pierced when your kind image, loving and paternal, when living in the world hour after hour, you taught me how man makes himself eternal, and while I live, my tongue shall always speak of my debt to you and of my gratitude. I don't hear this as the kind of pity that he's been feeling all along. This is mixed so with respect for, it, it's, it's like Dante towards Virgil. Virgil's, by the way, don't forget this, Virgil's with the damned. He has nothing but respect for him and admiration. Here, I think he's showing a teacher who was so influential in his life, the respect that he owed him. This much at least let me make clear to you, if my conscience continues not to blame me, I am ready for whatever fortune. How much does his conscience, Dante would even say that his conscience is accusing him at times this much at least let me make clear if my conscience continues not to blame me I am ready for whatever fortune wants this prophecy is not new to my ears so let fortune turn her wheel spinning it as she passes she he got something from Chiaco and several of the other souls here's where I want to go go to the very end Brunetto takes his leave and this is the way it's described I would say more, but my walk and conversation with you cannot go on, for over there I see a new smoke rising from the sand. People approach with whom I must not mingle. Remember my tresor, where I live on. That's his work, his writing. This is the only thing I ask of you. Then he turned back and he, here is what I want to focus on for a second. Then he turned back and he seemed like one of those who run Verona's race across its fields to win the green cloth prize, and he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. How are we to understand what's going on? What's the contrapasso? What does this reveal about Brunetto here? T.S. Eliot made a comment on this very scene. I can't remember where in his writing, some critical piece. And he expressed his puzzlement over it that he couldn't make of it. I, I, think, I think I see it. Um, but I'm not sure. If I do see it correctly, for me, it's terrifying. Honestly, it leaves me shaking. What's going on here? Then he turned back and he seemed like one of those who run Verona's race across its field to win the green cloth prize. And he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. What's the irony here? Well, he's just been talking about not doing this but then he's the fastest one not doing what well not chasing after those things of of pride and envy Mm, and so mm, on in the mm.
1: city but yet once he gets started he's the winner but still going after him and the irony well that what he's saying
0: isn't anything he regrets or he doesn't see it he doesn't see it yeah What's terrifying about, I mean, I think, I think that's a good reading of it, too. What's terrifying about this for me is um, you can see him doing this in life. And if life and death are separated by a wall, that wall came down, all he's doing is continuing to do what he did in life. It terrifies me. I, I, I've been a very competitive person most of my life. I love sports. I mean, I grew up playing basketball and teaching tennis and taking it seriously and... And I've all, I've taken, trying to be gracious very, very seriously as a, as an athlete. I don't like it when men aren't gracious or women, when they compete, you know, when they snub each other. To me it's just, when you lose, you should be gracious, so, um, but I know that that's part of my character. I mean, I've loved doing well, whatever I did, if I played tennis, I worked hard, if I played ping pong, I wanted to be good at it, I just loved doing things well, um, and and I think, I mean, I've not, it scares me sometimes. How much pride that reflects makes me nervous. Truly nervous. Um, if I get into a competitive match with somebody, I mean, I, I'm very clear, I've been very clear with our kids, I mean, I don't want grousing or complaining or blaming or excuse, you know, if you're gonna play, play and love it. And so I take that seriously. Um, but I'm just aware that there's that, that quality to me. Seeing this guy and he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. That's how he had to go through life. And here he's doing exactly what he did in life. And he can't see the irony at all. At all. That image of just continuing to do, to do in the next life what we've been doing here, because it seems to me that's the perfect, that's what hell is. Um, we don't repent. We don't change. We, we all we do is carry over into the next life. What what else is there to do? We either change or what we're doing here is gonna carry because that's who we are. So
1: isn't that kind of the call to action? Mm-hmm. I mean you can I mean like, like, like he did, I mean, you can you can learn something, you can know something, but it doesn't really right. mean anything unless now that you know it you do something. Right. Yes. And, and I mean, yeah. He's, he's urging Dante, okay, now that you've learned it, do something with it.
0: I'm not sure that he, di- I mean, he knows, but but I, that's a perfect way to put it. But because knowing something's not enough, <coughs> you have to live it. And if, if living it means doing completely the opposite of what you're doing, you have to do that. Otherwise, you're stuck.
1: <coughs> Isn't that sort of what we're seeing? With the c- city putting forth a good face, but it's what's behind that that matters. Yeah, yeah.
0: Take a look. I'm gonna. We're gonna stop. I want to just take a look at Gary in, Um Seventeen. I want to come back here because I want to look at the sodomites, the homosexuals, and the users. One of the reasons I want to do that is because it, the the images are so telling, but also because when we go to the purgatory, as Dante approaches the top of purgatory, the highest level will be occupied by homosexuals. Because their great sin, I mean if you you put them on a scale, remember pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust, they're at the level that most resembles love. They're close to love, but there, they're doing penance. Here, they're they're living out their sin so I want to look at that uh, but take a look at the <clears throat> Geryon on page 89 the beginning of Canto 17 <clears throat> and now behold the beast with pointed tail that passes mountains annulling walls and weapons behold the one that makes the whole world stink by the way it transcends mountains walls weapons why because this sin is universal yeah this sin of fraud of seeming putting on a good face is everywhere it's not just here in America or Western these are the words I heard my master say as he signaled for the beast to come ashore and that pulse of spectacle of fraud floated close maneuvering head and chest on the shore but his tail he let hang free. His face was the face of any honest man that shone with such a look of benediction and all the rest of him was serpentine. His two clawed paws were hairy to the armpits. His back and all his belly and both flanks were painted with arabesque and um, curlicues. The Turks and Tartars never made a fabric with richer color and intricate woven. It's interesting because those are both heretic peoples for Dante. They produce this beautiful art, but it's all in turning. It's just, it's mechanically repetitive. Look at the cathedrals in, in medieval Europe. They're Gothic, they're all aspiring. They're breaking out, you know. Um, so this is Geryon. Um, Dante's gonna meet um, the user, the users here, yeah. And he will talk with them, but Geryon has come to take them down. Now just think about it. he's a beast. He's, he's tri-natured. He's got a human face, the body of a beast, and a tail of a serpent. So there's the parody again. But the the beauty of the image is that he has the face of a of a very gentle, calm, um, honest man. But underneath, he's a beast, and in his tail, he's serpentine. He's reptile. He stings. So now we're going to enter. Um, the level of the fraudulent, I'll try to go through this fairly, quickly. we don't have to touch on everything, I'll, just, I'll try to pick some of the most important, so we won't do all of them, but we're entering the depths of hell and what sets this off from the violent and the incontinent is a quality of deception, that the intellect is more active in covering things up, and that means to the degree that the intellect does that, it's going to be injuring people whether it knows it or not. So fraud is never just kept to itself. Whatever, in whatever way a person is not... A, remember Francisca. So often the, all the, the, the souls, do not, they do not see their sins and their tendency is to... They don't have the sense of irony that we're being asked to have. So that we The whole point of the inferno is to separate us from sin. To look at it and be aware of the ironies, hopefully for the effect that it will have on our lives, you know, but but they're caught in it, they're trapped. And the tendency is to blame others, to excuse, when I thought it was really wonderful what Dante did with um, Francisca. And what was the other example I just mentioned a few minutes ago about um, blaming God and I gave Francisca as an example, I can't remember, but but indirectly implicitly what he was doing was um, um, opposing God by having pity for Francisca he was setting his will against God the way she was so one of the things that's going on here is he's learning to make his will firmer his mind more honest that is he's learning to order his soul he's learning to change himself inwardly so that what he does is good that he's not doing it for himself to seem compassionate, a man of pity. He's learning to he's learning to have to put away some emotions and to see things more truly f- for what they are. It's an amazing journey. It's an amazing. I mean, if you think about it, so you know when we think in terms of epic battles, the epic battle of the Iliad, the epic battle of the Odyssey, the ep- epic battle of it. This is Beowulf gets closer because Beowulf is a Christian poem. That, the struggle that Beowulf had. This is an inward spiritual battle, and it's great. It is tremendous because it's so subtle. These sins are so... Dante's not fighting men on a battlefield. He's looking at the demons inside his own soul. So, we'll stop here. Um, I hope all of you have a good sleep tonight. <laughs> Should I the profession first? <laughs> I'm I'm going on Monday. (laughs)